The artist is Demi Lovato. Uh, she got her start on the Disney Channel as a child star, and she made the successful jump to be a recording artist. Um, but it has not come without challenges. She's been very open and honest about her struggles with mental illness, with eating disorders, with drug and alcohol abuse. At the age of 18, she went into rehab for the first time. And after being sober for several years in 2018, she went back into rehab after a near fatal drug overdose. Four days before that overdose, this was the song that she recorded in the recording studio. Afterwards, in an interview, this is what she said about that season in her life. She says, at the time when I was recording it, I almost listened back and heard the lyrics as a cry for help. And you kind of listen back to it and you kind of think, how did nobody listen to this song and think, let's help this girl? You know what I'm saying? Because, and I even think that I was recording it in a state of mind where I felt like I was okay, but I clearly I wasn't, she revealed. And I even listened back to it and I'm like, gosh, I wish I could go back in time and help that version of myself. I feel like I was in denial, but then a part of me definitely knew what I was singing for. I was singing this song and I didn't even realize that the lyrics were so heavy and emotional until after the fact. You hear the song and you even hear the interview and you hear pain and you hear desperation. Now, you've been face to face with somebody who's been in a desperate situation and you just ache for them and you're like, I want to help this person. Some of you, many of you, most of you have been on the opposite side of that coin where you've been the one in the desperate situation where you're just saying, could anyone come and help me as I'm facing this desperate situation? Well, the anyone that Demi is singing about is Jesus. Here's our big idea for the morning. If you don't remember anything else of what we're going to say, it's this. In Jesus, we visibly see the compassion of God. In Jesus, we see the visible compassion of God. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see two very desperate people and how Jesus shows up in their need and time of desperation. So please join me in prayer. We are desperate people. We live in desperate times. Our solutions do not work. Jesus, we need you to show up. We need you to take charge. Jesus, we need you to enter into our pain and suffering. The glorious news of the gospel is that you have done that and you continue to do that. To offer compassion to desperate people. Show us your compassion today. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks, we are in a series looking at the miracles of Jesus. And we're looking at five different locations and five different miracles. If you were here two weeks ago, we looked at the authority and the power of Jesus. And if you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus as the Son of God is equal to God the Father in essence, work, power, judgment, 
and honor. And this week, we're going to talk about that in Jesus, we see the compassion of God. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 43. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The verses will be up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible in front of you or you've got a device that you can find the Scripture, it'd be awesome for you to have it in front of you. Let me give you a setting of where we're going to be. So uh, we started off at the Sea of Galilee two weeks ago. Remember, we talked about Capernaum. And that was right there. Last week we were in Jerusalem. We are now back up at the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. So let me tell you where we are in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, towards the end, the disciples are going to get in a boat here around Capernaum. And they're going to travel across the Sea of Galilee. And they are going to come headlong into a storm, a life and death situation. And there's going to be a boat of people who are in a desperate situation need, and Jesus calms the storm. That's at the end of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 5, the disciples and Jesus are going to land right here in this area, and they are immediately greeted by a demon-possessed man who is so desperate that he lives in a graveyard. Another desperate person shows up, and Jesus frees the man out of his desperate situation. That's the first part of Mark chapter 5. And now we're going to have the disciples getting back in a boat and coming back across the sea. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of, I'm going to call it pastoral license. It doesn't tell us exactly where on the northwest shore where they have landed. They could have possibly gone back to Capernaum, but we're going to focus on this city here of Magdala, and I will explain why in just a little bit, why I'm taking some pastoral license to place our story today in Magdala. This is a modern day view of Magdala. It doesn't look like much, but let me tell you, during the time of Jesus, this was a thriving city. This was a fishing port. They had a harbor. It had its own stadium. It had an aqueduct system. Uh, Estimates are that there were about 40,000 people that lived in Magdala. It was larger than Capernaum. But what happened After the time of Jesus, towards the end of the first century, when there was a Jewish revolt against the Romans, this was actually one of the centers for that Jewish revolt, and the Romans did not take too kindly to that. And they sold all of the citizens of Magdala into slavery, and the city existed no more. In the 1970s, they started doing some excavation and they're finding stuff literally every day. This is an active dig that's going on. They have only uncovered about 10% of the city. In 2009, just think about this, 2009, they found the synagogue, a first century synagogue. This could have been a synagogue during the time of Jesus. And notice the mosaic on the floor. It's a very elaborate mosaic. Um, This is a wealthy city. And the synagogue had wealth. We also found, they've also found their uh, frescoes that were painted frescoes that were in the synagogue. Again, this was a very wealthy city and we're gonna, that's gonna be important for our story in just a second. And they also found this, this is very, very cool. Um, hopefully you can see this, that is a menorah, a Jewish menorah. That is the oldest representation of a Jewish menorah ever discovered. Archaeologists say that this is possibly the greatest finding in Israel so far this century 
the oldest representation of a menorah, and they found it there in the synagogue in Magdala. So we're in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders, you just saw the synagogue. So one of the leaders of that synagogue named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Jairus was an important man. He's one of the top leaders in the synagogue as a lay leader. Uh, He is a man of great authority. He is also possibly a man of great wealth, but he's also a desperate daddy. We know from the other parallel accounts of this story that this is his only daughter. And we know from later in the story that this is his only 12-year-old daughter and she's dying. And Jairus has heard the stories about Jesus. He's heard that Jesus is a miracle worker. And so he is a desperate man and he comes to Jesus, says, Jesus, can you please help me in my desperate situation? And Jesus, who's a busy man, drops everything and goes and he heads to this man's house to take care of this desperate situation. And again, it's a large crowd that's pressing around him. Now, here's the really cool part of this structure. So Jesus is en route to go perform a miracle. And in the midst of that, another miracle story takes place. So it's like an Easter egg. It's a miracle inside of a miracle. So now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. And she had spent everything she had and was not able and was and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. This bleeding for 12 years, most likely this is a continual menstrual flow. And you can imagine the pain that would come with that, but also just the quality of life. But the more important thing for our story for this is she was ceremonially unclean for 12 years. See, she couldn't go to Jairus's synagogue because she was considered unclean. She couldn't go to Jairus' house to eat. She couldn't come to anybody's house to eat because she was unclean. She could not be touched, and she had not touched anyone for 12 years. So here we have two people on the opposite extremes of the social ladder. Jairus, who probably is the most important man in town, and this invisible woman, and both of them are desperate. Notice as well that she spent everything she had and it hasn't helped at all. Medicine during this time is not the best. And so these were crude treatments and it made matters worse and not better. And she had spent every penny. She was unloved. She had shame and she was broke. Having heard about Jesus... She came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. See, Jairus is at the top of the social scale, so he can go and talk to Jesus face to face. She's heard about Jesus and that Jesus is a miracle worker, just as Jairus had. But there is no way she can approach Jesus. She says, if I can just sneak up and touch him, then I can be made well. Continuing on, 
This is why I've picked Magdala for our site. There's a modern-day chapel that's there, and I want you to notice the flooring. The flooring that's here, this is the actual floor of the marketplace in Magdala. The marketplace possibly would have been the location where all this is taking place. This is where the boats would be docked and where fish would be traded. And this would have been the busiest place in the city. And then you notice this mural that's here. And the mural is called Encounter. And it is based on our story. And so we see the hand of a desperate woman reaching out to touch Jesus. Continuing on, instantly her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking all around to see who had done this. Now, I want to make a very clear point here. The miracle had already taken place. She is already healed. She could praise the Lord. She's been healed. Jesus could do great. I've taken care of this because I've got to go on to another thing. But Jesus stops because he knows that the healing is not complete. There's a physical healing, but there's also an emotional healing that's going to take place as well. The crowd is pushing in. And the disciples, in their mind, they know who the important person is. Jairus is the important person. That's the important miracle. Jesus, why are you saying this stupid thing? It's very harsh in what they said in the original language. They're snarky. They're sarcastic to Jesus. Who touched you? Come on, Jesus. The important guy and the important miracle is over here, and we need to get to that. But Jesus says, no, there's something else I need to do here and now. The woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. The fear and trembling. The woman is in fear and trembling. There's two possible reasons why. One is, remember, she is the lowest person on the social scale at this point, and she thinks she's in trouble. I touched a holy man, and now I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to be reprimanded because I did this thing. That's a possible interpretation of this, but I think the other one is there's fear and trembling because she knows immediately that Jesus is not a mere man. She's coming face to face with God. And there is fear and trembling before a holy God. And look at the first word Jesus says. See, the proper word would have been woman. And that sounds cold in our modern vernacular. Think of it as ma'am. That's what, the, that's what a proper person would say, ma'am. But here's a woman who had not been touched for 12 years, had not been loved, had faced shame, was penniless. And the very first thing Jesus says to her is, daughter. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus calls someone daughter. I even have, again, allow me a little bit of pastoral license here. I even think Jesus probably stooped down and grabbed this woman's precious face and said, 
daughter. And you know, at that moment, I don't know what gave the woman more joy. That she had been healed of her physical ailment or that there was an emotional healing that was there. This term of endearment. And once again, remember, the healing had already taken place. Jesus had already done the job, but there was another healing that took place. And Jesus, in his compassion, took the time to speak words of life to this woman. We're going to come back to that a little bit later on. Verse 35 and 36, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, People came from, the, came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Here's Jesus kneeling down to this invisible woman and calling her daughter. And here's Jairus saying, Jesus, we got to get going because I've got a desperate situation. The disciples are saying, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? The important person and the important miracle is still to go. And The word daughter is now used on a completely different frame. And the worst news that Jairus could have possibly heard is, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jairus is sitting at that point, and he's probably thinking, this was a waste of time. I wasted Jesus' time, and and this delay with this woman wasted, probably caused my daughter to die. I'm done. And, and Jairus at that point could have walked away. Jesus, I don't want to bother you anymore. And he could have walked away. But again, we're going to see the compassion of Jesus. Jesus overheard what these people were saying, that his daughter was dead. And he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. And actually the Greek in here is really this idea of stop being afraid and keep believing. It's as if Jesus talks to Jairus and says, Jairus, you trusted me to heal your daughter. Buddy, I'm going to heal your daughter. Hold on to that faith that you have. That was what Jairus needed to hear at the moment. The moment when the woman with bleeding was healed, the thing she'd need to hear at that moment was daughter. The moment that, that Jairus got the worst news possible, Jesus spoke the words that were needed. Keep believing. Don't be afraid. And Jairus goes with Jesus. Verse 37 through 40, he, Jesus, did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and they saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at Jesus. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Three times in the Gospels, we see Peter, James, and John getting to see a sneak peek that the other disciples do not get to see. It is this miracle. It is the transfiguration where they get to see the glory of Jesus. And it is the Garden of Gethsemane where they see the suffering of Jesus. That should tell you right there that this is getting ready to be a biggie. This is going to be a big miracle. But also, let's just do on a more practical front. Jesus doesn't want to bring 12 fishermen into a house that's already full with a bunch of people. Jesus is sensitive enough to the situation. He has enough compassion. And he says, the last thing I want to do is overwhelm them with any more people. Because there was a commotion going on. Uh, let me, ex- that word commotion, it's like a, con- it's like sound. 
It's like, this, it's like a carnival that's happening that's there. Let me explain about Jewish funerals in the first century. There were three things that you would find in every Jewish funeral. Number one is you would find people literally ripping their clothes. And there were procedures of what piece of clothing you would rip based on how you were mourning. And so there's people out there ripping their clothes. There are professional mourners that the family would hire so that the announcement could be made that a death had occurred. And so the mourners would be vocalizing the pain and the agony of that family. And then they would also hire musicians, but the musicians would not play a song. They would play things that were off key so that it matched the emotions. So there's people wailing and there's music going on. In the parallel accounts in the other gospels, Jesus comes in and basically says, stop it and get out. And so you go from this carnival of sound to complete silence. Jesus takes control of the room once again, like he does in all the other situations. And then notice this compassion. He takes Jairus. He takes Jairus's wife. And he takes these three close disciples and they enter into the room. Remember, Jesus could have performed the miracle from a distance. There was nothing keeping Jesus from performing the miracle from a distance. But Jesus is showing compassion all throughout this to Jairus, just like he showed compassion to the woman. He took the time to listen to Jairus at the, at the shore. He agreed to go with Jairus to the house. When he shows up and he sees the chaos, he takes control of the situation and then Jesus, the Son of God, personally takes Jairus and Jairus' wife by the hand and enters into the room where their dead child is laying. Compassion. Jesus shows up because he knew that's what they needed at the moment. 1441. Then he, Jesus, took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were utterly astonished. Talitha can mean little girl, but it can also mean lamb. So Jesus, when he heals the woman who's had bleeding for 12 years, he reaches down and looks in her face and says, daughter. Jesus, now there's a little girl who just happens to also be 12 years old, and he looks in her face and says, Lamb. Jesus, with the woman, remember, she couldn't be touched, and the woman touched Jesus. That now made Jesus ceremonially unclean. Jesus takes the girl by the hand. You can't touch a dead person. That makes you ceremonially unclean. But Jesus doesn't care about the ceremony and the rituals. He cares about the person. And he grabs her by the hand and says, little lamb, get up. And immediately she gets up and she begins to walk. And I love this. At this, they were utterly astonished. The literal Greek there means they were standing outside of their mind in amazement. Have you ever been in that situation where you almost have that out-of-body experience? It is such an amazing thing going on that you look at, you don't even look at it from the perspective of yourself. You're outside of yourself looking at it. That's what's going on. She was dead. She was dead. And now she is alive. And they can't believe what's going on. 
And then he, Jesus, gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. They're going to figure it out in just a minute anyway that the girl's alive. I mean, so what's going on here about, you know, are they going to hide the girl? No, they're not going to hide the girl. Remember, we've been talking about this in all of our lessons about the agenda of the Messiah. There is an agenda that's going on. And Jesus knows that the ultimate fulfillment of the agenda, it begins here with the resurrection of life, but it's going to be ultimately fulfilled in his own death, burial, and resurrection. So it's not time just yet to give the full revelation of the agenda of the Messiah. It's a sneak peek. And then this last thing, I love it. Told her to get something to eat. Now, I don't know how many 12-year-olds you know, but 12-year-olds can eat you out of house and home. But here's the thing, too, is that this girl has been sick for days, weeks. We don't know. We don't know the last time she actually ate a meal And Jesus knows in the craziness of everything going on, no one's going to feed this little girl. So Jesus in his compassion even says, hey, before we do too much celebration, let's make sure we get her something to eat. The compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus to a woman who has suffered for 12 years and the compassion of Jesus to Jairus and his precious daughter who's also 12 years of age. Two applications for this. One is interruptions. Your greatest ministry will happen in the interruptions in life. Let me give a couple examples for this. Um, When I was on pastoral staff at a church, I don't know if you know this, but Sundays are go time. They're go time. And without fail, somebody would stop me in the hallway and want to have this long conversation with me. And I'm like, I love you, buddy, but it's go time. And I've got to go because the ministry is whatever I was going to go do. No, no, no. The ministry's right there in front of me. The ministry was in the interruption. Let me give you some examples. Kids want to have the most serious conversation with you at the most inopportune time imaginable. In our house, it's one o'clock in the morning. I don't know what it is for you, but at, at the most inopportune time is when your child wants to have the deepest conversation with you. And you're like, buddy, it's not time to do this yet. No, it is time to do this yet. The ministry's in the interruptions. That's when you set your stuff aside and you focus on your child. It's the coworker who comes by and stops at your cubicle and starts opening their soul to you. And you're like, I got to get back to this Excel spreadsheet. No, you don't. The ministry is in the interruption and it's you setting the work aside and being all in with the person. It's the late night phone call. It's the late night text message. And you're like, I don't have time to call this person back. Yeah, you do. You've got time. And you call the person back and you don't just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. No, you call the person back and you actually pray for the person right then and there. Or the final one. You know this one. The Holy Spirit's telling you, man, I need to say something. I need to say something. Gosh, I need to say something. Speak. Because in the interruptions is where the ministry takes place. Listen and then act in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But there's a second side of this coin, which is the desperation. Some of you are going to be an instrument of compassion to other people. Others of you, you're coming like the Demi Lovato song and you're going, I just need somebody to love on me right now because I am not doing well. I am in a desperate situation. Let me tell you the application for you is do not let the desperation drive you to bitterness. You know people in life who are bitter because life has been tough. Life is tough, but don't let it become bitterness in your life. You know people who have been there, and I'll be honest, some of you are close on that edge, and bitterness is setting in. Instead, drive to Jesus. See, Jairus was in a desperate situation and he could have just not gone to Jesus, but instead he drove and went all in with Jesus. When Jairus gets the worst news possible that your daughter is dead and he wants to give up and give into his fears, no, Jesus says, continue to drive into me. This woman who has bleeding for 12 years, she's like, I am a nobody in this society and Jesus won't give me time of day, but she decides I'm going to drive into Jesus. Do not let bitterness set in. Instead, drive into the compassion of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, it's a philosophical address of, well, how do you deal with pain and suffering if there's also a good God? Is there pain and suffering? Absolutely, there's pain and suffering. But there is still a good God who is wise and compassionate, and he knows what he is doing. I love this quote, pain. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. See, when pain enters my life, I want to rebel. I want to run. I do not want to drive in. But with pain, I need to drive into Jesus because Jesus has the compassion that I'm looking for. Jesus offers compassion. For some of you in the room, you need to be the compassion of Jesus to other people. And for others of you in the room, you need to dive and drive deeper into the compassion of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant that the words which we have heard today in our ears, may they, through the Holy Spirit, may they be grafted in our heart. For those in our life who need the compassion of Jesus, May we be the tangible expression of that compassion. And for those of us who are in desperate need of you, may you, Father, Son, and Spirit, drive us back to you, to your compassionate arms. We are desperate people in need of you. And we ask these things in the name of our compassionate Jesus and in the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.